Welcome to Some Context Please, a podcast from the team at Foundry Creative School. This podcast sets out to draw a line between what students are learning and what's really happening in the creative industries. Of course, you don't need to be a current Foundry student to enjoy the podcast. Everyone is welcome. My name is Matt Leach, and I'm your host for this season on branding and graphic design. This is the fourth episode in the season of eight, and I'm again joined by two industry professionals, Mel Bayash and Tim Rigg. Each session, we pick up on things that are being taught in the current curriculum. This edition sees us looking into typography. We discuss fonts, how to pair them, and what hierarchy means. Typography has a vital role in branding. Apart from imagery, it's going to be one of the main ways that you communicate to your audience, whether it's a logo, signage, posters, social media, websites, etc. Typography is going to be the key factor in how people experience the brand. It's a bit of an umbrella term, though. Typography refers to both the fonts you use, but also the layout technique. Students have spent this session exploring typefaces, but also understanding the anatomy of type. We're not going to get too deep into descenders and X heights. Rather, we're going to focus on how much you need to know in order to work as a branding designer. I began by telling Mel about a creative director I once worked for that told me, if designers don't understand type, they should just give up and find another profession. I don't know if you, sh- you need to give up, but I think it's 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 one of your base tools, right? Mm-hmm. Like ultimately most of the time you are going to have some type on a page and if you don't know how to use it, it might make it tricky to communicate what you need to communicate. Like, at, you know, a bare minimum, you might have a, a website on something, although maybe I would argue you don't even need that anymore. Why would you say that? Well, because um, everyone Googles everything. Yep. So I don't think you need the www dot. I think if I'm looking for, you know, Adidas, I'm going to type in Adidas. I don't need to know if it's a .com or a yep. .co or whatever it is and I'll get there. This is a really good point Mel makes. When you stop to think about it, it's pretty rare to see a www dot on a poster or billboard these days. But it's slightly off topic. So why is type important, particularly for designers to understand it? I think it's really important to understand type because it's a way that we communicate. People need to read it. People need to be comfortable reading it. People need to take out the thing that you want them to take out. And if you don't know how to use that appropriately, often it's really hard for the audience on the other side to actually do that. One of the complaints I get a lot from creative directors is that design graduates don't know how to use typography well enough. As a creative director herself, I asked Mel whether this was something she was noticing. I can't say broad brushstrokes, yes, but I I would say that a lot of the time the issue is less about type and more about hierarchy. If you have everything shouting at you on a page, you're not really understanding type and how to use it appropriately. Um, When I started out, I remember my design director teaching me the fundamentals of type and typography um, through the lens of music. So she, she talked about how if you think about it like a composition, you're going to have some loud moments. And if you have those loud moments, you need to kind of pair that out or balance that out with softer moments, I guess like a, an ebb and flow. So you can have, for instance, you're putting together a brochure. If everything is monotone, it's going to be boring. So yep. you need moments in that, you know, in this case, in a brochure where things might be a little bit louder or they break the monotony before you go back to those quieter moments. It's funny how both Mel and Tim like to bring up music when they're describing type. Now, we haven't heard from Tim yet, but if you've listened to previous episodes of this season, you know that Tim loves his type. I wanted to know what attracted him to type in the first place. To me, like from a primitive level, like I, I view us as kind of like complex monkeys. <laughs> and type is 
the way that we figured out like this really it's the jigsaw puzzle that we made the pieces to as a species to communicate with each other yeah and it doesn't get any rawer than that to me so i mean people say oh a picture paints a thousand words i mean i couldn't agree less <laughs> i think the right combination of words in the right typeface so to me it's about dressing your message up in the best possible duds if you've got a lovely thing to say and the right typeface to say it in that's pure communication to me um so i think imagery color a lot of that kind of stuff can be culturally biased and not get through to somebody but i think type is definitely the clothing that my verbal or written messaging wears so that's that's why i got fascinated i think yeah and no, i love that it takes me back to a lecture that i sat in where they talked about i guess this idea of if helvetica was a person and came into the room what, what would they be wearing and i think they then talked about baskerville and we decided baskerville was like an old gentleman <laughs> yeah. who was impeccably dressed yeah what would a helvetica was it black jeans and a black tee? <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. Like, yeah. D- yeah. Designer glasses. Yeah. How do you get that across to clients? Because I guess that understanding of type, can it be conveyed in a fairly simplified way? I can't remember who taught me this lesson, so um, I'd love to give credit to them, but I can't remember the name. But I think the easiest way, to, and I've used this to describe, like, to describe that very thing to clients, is if you come across, if you're driving down a country road... And you see a sign on the side of the road and it's in handwriting and it says farm fresh eggs but the r is backwards yeah <laughs> you go oh that's endearing i'll go and buy some eggs yeah but 100 meters down the road if you saw free pilot lessons <laughs> in the same handwriting with the backwards r you would definitely not be going for a pilot yeah. lesson from there so you can show those two examples to a client and say and really simply get that point across hey this suits an egg salesman it doesn't suit a pilot <laughs> So if the same handwriting doesn't fit two industries, um, explain why it does to one, why it does make something folksy and endearing and why it does seem dangerous um, in another. If you can use one typeface to show why something's appropriate over here but not there, then you can start to build up their knowledge because like we were talking about earlier, like as their knowledge of your process and your principles grows, then their confidence in you grows. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not one of those people who rags on all the classic fonts that everyone loves to rag on. Like, there's a place... That, I'm I'm one of those guys... I will say there's a place and time for Comic Sans. <laughs> really? Yeah, absolutely. I've got, a, I've got Times New Roman tattooed on me as a... I mean, it's a joke, <laughs> but there's a time and a place for everything. But if you can show a client, um, hey, look, this is going to work over here. Let's say it was comic sans and that you wanted to have because it is available let, let me give you some benefits of comic sans okay it's a system typeface so before we had google fonts and everything needed to be google safe like comic sans will run on a 40 year old pc yeah you don't need to load anything there's no extra line of code it'll run on a one-year-old mac if somebody was coming to you and they said look i've got a brand and we need to put out a weekly comic strip and it's going into dialogue bubbles it's like, oh, you can't afford a hand letter. Yeah. Chuck Comic Sans in there. Like, that's the time that it's the right font. It might be the only time it's the right font. <laughs> but, like, there's no point being anti-something for the sake of being anti it when there are correct times to use any tool in your toolbox. Mm-hmm. You can tell I wasn't convinced about Comic Sans. 
I spoke to Mel about this exercise of humanizing typefaces. So you, you could imagine what they would be wearing if they walked into a room. I think that's probably a great analogy for it. Like it's the suit that they wear, yes. they, the human suit that they put on when they walk into a room. So Times New Roman is probably going to be in a suit. A Helvetica might be a little bit looser. It's actually the best thing I can think about is this old Apple ads, which maybe your students will never have seen, but it was a guy who was kind of like an IBM guy and the other guy was an Apple guy. And if I had to put a font above each of them, I probably would have put a Times New Roman on the IBM guy and like the friendliest rounded sans serif I could find on the other. Yeah, that's great. They were great ads. I'm going to have to put them in, in the <laughs> LMS now. This idea that a typeface can subtly send you messages is pretty powerful. And the Apple TV commercial was a great example about how just by noticing what the people were wearing, PC was in a tied business suit, glasses, thinning hair, apples in sneakers, jeans, and a loose t-shirt. They were sending subliminal messages about how they wanted you to feel about each product. PC looked tired, a bit stressed, uncomfortable. Apple was relaxed and cool. Can typefaces send similar messages just by their style and look? Yeah, I mean, there's something at the moment I saw. Um, there's a new mobile provider called Go Mobile at the moment. And there's something, uh, the reason why they caught my attention the other day on an ad was because I haven't seen an extended typeface in a long time. Like, and you know, everything's meant to be cyclical in terms of fashion. And so for any of the students who don't know what an extended typeface is, it's just the opposite of a condensed typeface. So it's where the letters are very wide. And I haven't seen it in fashion, in Vogue for 30 years and I think what they're trying to say through this ad campaign or through this brand that they've built is that they are non-traditional that they are prepared to take risks and that's what came across very quickly to me as a mm -hmm. viewer looking at this thing I was like oh that's a bit ballsy using that very you know kind of out of date or dated or whatever style of type but subliminally it did make me think risk taker maverick mm. and so i can start to get these like little feelings of a brand immediately so I, i've got that critical eye that i can watch it yeah ad and know why that's doing that to me but it would also subconsciously be doing that to a non-aware viewer they will be having those same kind of feelings even though they're not able to deconstruct why i wanted to dig deeper into how you can use this to your advantage and how you might choose a font so it's going to send those subtle messages. Is it a matter of starting out with your favorite fonts and working out from there? Or, or did Mel have a, another technique that she uses? I actually don't have favorite fonts. I think you shouldn't choose a font based on what you like. You should choose a font based on what the client needs or what their audience needs or what they'll respond to or whatever that might be you know what there are great agencies there's one called experimental jet set that only uses helvetica and they do beautiful work yep. but i would probably argue that the people they're doing that work for that type choice makes sense for them so i would 100 percent say for me it's like go wide like have a look what's out there there are so many amazing foundries you know, like for instance, uh, not to like talk about Sydney Film Festival too much, but the font we chose for them, because a lot of the brands was around nostalgia, we went back to one of the earliest Sydney Film Festivals and there was a very similar font used as the logo type. And we were like, oh my God, that's like, that's great. And it helped that it had 
really, really subtle links to, you know, clappers and that kind of stuff. Most people don't care about that stuff and mm. wouldn't see it, but they're just nice thoughtful touches around why you might choose a font over another one. And like, uh, for instance, with the uh, West Coast Taz, to use that as an example, or even the New Zealand brand, typography can hold an entire brand. So a lot of place brands are driven by typography. Um, West Coast Taz has one called Sidetrack, uh, which is based around, if you go to the West Coast, there's railroads everywhere. Um, and that's how the towns used to connect. And so just as a, you know, a nod to the place and something that's real that locals can recognize. And then when visitors go there, they can see that too. The type is based on those railroads. And that's something that, you know, is completely ownable by that brand. With the New Zealand typeface, you know, they've got an amazing typeface drawn on the cultural history of the place and the, the Maori culture there. And again, that drives the entire brand i think those pieces of work would feel very different if it was just a helvetica now those two typefaces are they typefaces that you designed in-house so um sadly i had nothing to do with the new zealand brand they're both bespoke typefaces usually for a lot of them the new zealand one was based on something completely bespoke but the west coast one um, we worked with a typographer called Matra uh, Rigueur and he's a typographer in Paris. But some of the time what you do is you'll find a base typeface that has some of the characteristics that you want and then we customize from there. But, you know, I think even if you're not, like if you can't go that far, I would say though open source typefaces, a lot of the time you can customize that, which is awesome. But if you can't go that far, I still think type has such personality and I think it does a lot. If we, if you want it to be just a pure functional communi- communication tool, then go for your life. Use something very simple, very sans, um, whatever it might be. But if you want it to have a touch more personality, there's a world of fonts out there that you can look at. So there is a world of fonts and it's growing yeah. exponentially. And I know a lot of students struggle with... I guess once you start, it's a little bit like searching on the internet or on Instagram. It's like suddenly you go down the hole and you're like, I don't even remember what I was looking for in the first place. How do you stop yourself from doing that when you're looking through fonts? I think we have foundries that we know do incredible uh, work. Okay, there's going to be a little bit of confusion here. Mel's brought up foundries. We are also called foundry. Mel's talking about tight foundries here. So I got her to explain. So a type foundry, so, you know, they're the guys who go away and design fonts and put them on their websites and you probably come across them when you're in the rabbit hole. But I would say that, you know, Colophon is a great one, Grilly Type, there are a few others that are, names are escaping me. But what I would say is that you find a core group of type foundries and they're your go-to because you know that they're going to be well-crafted, they're going to be considered, you know that they have a bit of a range, so... I think like for the most part, what I would say is most clients don't want anything wacky. And so if you land on like da font, probably not going to find what you're looking for there. But I think um, to save yourself the pain of trawling the depths of the internet, find foundries that, you know, do great typefaces that have the rigor and the craft. And you usually find stuff there that's great now you talked about the personality of a font and this is something i know as a student myself in the past Mm -hmm. i had a lot of trouble understanding whether i guess how i saw the personality was the same as how someone else saw the personality yeah have you got any tips for how you do that you know there are some 
this this is something that people will disagree with because sometimes it is about how you use the font and not what it's based in so like as you know a starting point people might say okay if you use a serif that's maybe a more elegant or a more serious font a sans is very friendly so you you can do that as a starting point but I would argue that like you know like a rounded serif use really big can also be really friendly if you look at we transfer that's a serif um it's great brand it's super friendly and it's probably used in a little bit more of an untraditional way and so I I think it's it it is kind of a mixture of both so it's like if you use a you know a really like an elegant serif which might have you know really thin delicate parts that probably is going to look a lot more delicate and a lot more serious as a starting point. But I think once you're there, you've got to decide what you want to do with it. And that's going to drive the personality a little bit more. It really comes down to understanding the individual typefaces and how they work. This is only really something that can be learned through practice. I told Tim a bit of a story from my days of teaching publications. That idea of practice is is really appealing. And it's something that has to be built up over time. And I remember teaching a publication class and they had to choose two fonts at the very start and they weren't allowed to use anything else mm. for the whole class for the whole nice for the whole course yeah that's cool and it was good because they got you know some of them chose terribly and but <laughs> then and, they were stuck with it yeah and they were stuck with it and, and at the end of it they could tell you why they were terrible yeah because okay. they they now had spent long enough with them to really know and other people chose well those people probably learned less if you teach someone to drive you don't want to give them a brand new Audi with you know sensors that park the car for you I mean you want to teach them in a 20 year old beat up yeah Corolla um that's got a little bit more manual control like yeah I mean I almost feel sorry for the ones who picked the great fonts out of the but and because it all goes back to a, a workshop that I went to um and I was given Avenir in Baskerville <laughs> <laughs> that's how I got to learn Baskerville really well <laughs> yeah right I knew Tim would find this funny because he's not a fan of Baskerville. I would say he just hasn't spent enough time with it. That project, when I went through it, was really impactful because Baskerville, for all its faults, well, I had to learn how to work with it and I got to know the letter forms really well. I'd suggest this exercise for anyone. Just choose two fonts and try to work with only those two. Designers love constraints. It takes away the paradox of choice. This is when you have too many choices to choose from. This is what the world of fonts and typefaces can feel like to students. Where do you start? How do you stop yourself from having analysis paralysis? Are there any steps that you can take for choosing a font at the start of a project? It's changed a lot um, in the last, obviously, well, since in the last 20 years. Uh, I kind of work backwards nowadays within the limitations of what their deliverables might be. So... Let's say a client, let's look at two horrible examples. Okay. Because <laughs> it's, it's good to go like work within a tight problem, right? So I've had clients where their main deliverable is going to be a PowerPoint deck. <laughs> and it needs to be something that they spit out of Windows 95 off a 20-year-old PC and they yep. need to be able to work on it late at night and they've got PowerPoint version 7 or something. Now, if I go and tell them, hey, look, no, what you want to do <laughs> is you want to go and use Google Slides and yeah. use Google Safe Fonts and this, you know, set of fonts that were designed in 2020 to look optimal, it, it's 
unreasonable. The client isn't going to do that. They've told you the parameters of their problem they need solved. So I need to look at how can I work within their brand with potentially system fonts, uh, of which there are only 14, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that are going to work for their primary output. Another problem might be that somebody says, okay, we've, we've got an entirely digital brand, or this wouldn't be a problem nowadays. But if somebody said we've got an entirely digital brand but we need each of our um, pages of our website to load on 3G or whatever Wi-Fi speed, the pages need to have a 40KB size limit and load in under half a second or whatever. Then you're going to try and keep it to one to two fonts per page. Mm -hmm. You're going to have them simple fonts. You don't want too much embedded in the code. That's when you start talking to your developer you'd start looking at Google safe fonts that are going to appear the same across all around your thing. I mean, obviously then you bring it back to print and the world's your oyster. You can do whatever you want in print. Cause like print is like a flat, by the time it goes to print, it's like a flat locked down JPEG almost. Mm, mm. Uh, so you, I mean, go nuts. But how do you know that Garamond is right for that client and not Baskerville? Oh, <laughs> you've, you picked a couple in the same family there. Yeah. Um, look, you can future-proof things, so you can have a look at uh, what they might be doing in the future and as opposed to just the deliverable that you've been given right now. I'm also, I'm never going to choose Baskerville over Garamond. <laughs> 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 or me personally. Um, I, think, I think that's my point is uh, do you end up... There's some subjectivity involved. Yeah. I mean, but that comes from knowing a typeface. Like, I also know that, I mean... I know that Adobe, look, and this is going to make me sound like a wanker or whatever, but like you've spent enough time with a typeface and you've spent enough time doing these projects. I know that Adobe has put in enough time and effort to make their own cut of Garamond. And I know that their glyphs are far more extensive than anything Baskerville's got. We talk about ligatures. I know there are twice as many ligatures in Adobe Garamond. So I know that if that same client, let's say it's a law firm that wants to appear like they've been around for 400 years, and they want a much more established typeface, but we are living in today's day and age. I want to take that established Garamond typeface. I want to know that I've got the ligatures to appear a certain way. I know that I've got the glyphs. So it's flexible for today's landscape, but it appears Mm. with that kind of heritage and authority. And I know that Baskerville's not going to do that. And, but like you, you, that's, you have to get there over time. Like, and, and I guess that is a tricky conversation to have with a client. But I mean, if I could give a piece of advice to students, you do not ever want to be in a room where you're presenting an option with Baskerville and an option with Garamond. No. It'd be like walking into a room saying, have a look at this version with Gil Sands and have a look at this version with Futura. Two type nerds talking to each other about type. What a horrible podcast. I apologize. What Tim is getting at there, though, is you should never put your client in a situation where they're going to have analysis paralysis. Gil Sands and Futura to the untrained eye can look very similar, the same as Helvetica and Ariel. It's like showing two colors off pink and off off pink and asking the client to make a decision. They'll be confused at first and then even more confused as you explain the subtle differences. You need to make these decisions before you get to the client. This brings up how to match fonts. We don't want to be just working with one typeface. As Mel stated, we need some contrast and for the personalities of the different fonts to be sending their subliminal messages. One of my big learnings when I was a student was that fonts were actually made to go together, particularly serifs and sans serif. 
So I asked him if he had a way for pairing fonts. Yeah, and I, I know I probably use too many metaphors, <laughs> uh, but I think it's... So I'll give a clothing metaphor. Like, you know how you... I'm a dude, so I'll give a dude's clothing metaphor. Like, you shouldn't be wearing tight jeans and a tight T-shirt. Right. So you wear a loose T-shirt and tight jeans or a tight I didn't, T-shirt. I didn't know this. Well, I mean, it's about... Uh, Contrast, like yeah. it's not necessarily even contrast, but it's about juxtaposition. And juxtaposition doesn't necessarily mean like a jarring juxtaposition. It means some things go together. One of my favorite, and I think it's a Coco Chanel quote, is, you know, style is never out of fashion. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there are some typographic pairs, uh, whether it is, as you said, sans serif with serif or, you know, great way to look at it is newspapers like because newspapers go in and out of fashion sometimes they'll i can't remember which one it is the age or whatever sans serif headings but then it's serif text yeah and other newspapers will flip it but you'll rarely see a newspaper that goes serif serif or sans serif sans serif so it, it's about figuring out those pairs for you what it is you're trying to communicate uh and then yeah look to history because the written word obviously is one of the i think is the first design element like that we can really go back to in terms of the printing press whatever Mm. so so look to history look to the lessons that we've learned at things that have worked then try and figure out why they worked like in your practice like because i'm big on practice 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 figure out why they work why are they visually pleasing to you uh and then you know by all means be the new mobile brand that wants to break it or whatever but yeah, figure out why things are working together and then go and rip up the rule book ladder. Mm-hmm. I threw the same question to Mel about how to pair fonts. I, I would say that after doing this for a while, it does come down to gut. There are great resources where you can see a lot of pairings, like things like TypeWolf. Essentially, you can look at how things feel together and how other people are using them together as a starting point. There are other things that I would say is like, I kind of maybe just little rules that I go by. So if I have a really expressive display typeface as my headline type, I don't want that for my body type because they're just going to be competing with each other. So again, I think it comes down to a little bit of that composition or that kind of musical composition in my head where it's like you need to have things that balance each other. And I think with typography as well, it's the roles that they play. So if, um, you know, for your sub copy, if you choose a sans, then you know that that's going to be a lot of the time used quite small. So you've got to make sure that it's quite, you know, clear and maybe a little bit wider or whatever it might be. But then if you pair it with a headline typeface and that can be used big, you can maybe go for something that's a little bit more expressive, whether that's um, another type of sans or a serif or... I guess a method of testing to see, to make sure it's going to work for purpose. Like often what we do when we're trying to figure out fonts is we will write a headline and a piece of sub copy and we will just trial those in lots and lots and lots of different pairings. And that's, that's a good, I, I always, you've got to, you've got to trial it out because you might have an inkling that something might be right, or you might have just based on what you understand about, you know, those suits that we talked about that typefaces Mm. wear when you put it down on paper, that's when you're actually going to know if they work together or not. Mel mentioned TypeWolf, and that's a great site if you want really detailed research into fonts that work really well together. FontSpark is another one. You do need to pay for this research, though. 
it is incredibly thorough. If you want some free sites, you should check out places like Fontjoy or the aptly named Fontpair. Here you can put two typefaces together and judge whether they're going to work together the way you expect. Of course, there is stuff you'll pick up along the way. Through practice, you're going to understand certain truths, as Tim explains. I know for a fact that if you use a four to two to one ratio, so let's say you have a 40-point headline right. to a 20-point subheading to a 10-point body copy, I know for a fact that's going to work like there are some things like that yeah and that's not i didn't read that in a book i did that by getting there myself and working it on baseline grid i know that sans serif fonts like helvetica they're coming out of a software engine made by adobe that is designed to also spit out serif fonts at the same tracking or kerning values so i know that as soon as a sans serif comes out in indesign or illustrator or photoshop track it in minus 30 right start at minus 30 and then start working like kerning your individual letters from there because they, they're going to come out too wide on the track because they're they're trying to also accommodate the sans serifs which look narrower on the track so because the serifs obviously drag your eye between letter shapes so understanding that you should never ever be dropping copy into something and just leaving it like we i i use the phrase out of the box like when when a font lands on your page that's what's called out of the box you you customize it from there right so yeah get your concepts of ratios between blocks of copy and that's you can go and study it like if you want to go back to the masters of swiss design in the 50s you can study it you can get there through practice but then figure out why things are coming out spread or tight on the track as they come out of the Adobe God's box and then, yeah, and then start working them out, working them in until... And the other phrase I love is the eye doesn't lie. So once you find it visually pleasing, yep. once you know your audience loves it, then screw the rule book. Like you got to a place where it works and hopefully you got there through doing the work. It should never be a fluke. Yeah, don't screw the rule book before you understand the rules. There is a big difference between knowing the breaking of the rules and just having a happy accident. There's some great tips there from Tim. Don't worry if you didn't get it all. As I mentioned, this is stuff you're going to pick up for yourself over time. Now, the big thing we haven't talked about, although it's been mentioned a few times along the way, is hierarchy. I asked Tim to give me the elevator pitch on hierarchy. So, I mean, in a classic sense, hierarchy of information if we go back to examples of like, let's talk about a static page. Um, so nothing dynamic, nothing digital, just yep. a static page. We've talked briefly in the past about kind of editing down to the fewest possible elements. But then if you've got the fewest possible words or whatever, in terms of type, imagine before you even sit down at the computer, like imagine you've got every element that's going to go on your page, cut out paper and scissors and yep. they're off to the side of your artboard. And then, you can change the size of them or the scale of them, the position of them, whatever. But have a look at them objectively and think which are the most important. Because like I know hierarchy, your head automatically thinks, oh, bigger, bolder equals more important. But sometimes it's the negative space around an element that gives it more hierarchy. It's about determining what do you want the reader to look at first, second, and third. And so in the classic sense to go the long way back around to answering your question i always love to talk about newspapers when it comes to hierarchy of information yep. 
So the headline and the image should be working in conjunction as the primary piece of information. You get their attention with that. Secondary piece of information is that subheading, so that little bit extra detail. And if that primary and that secondary piece of information have done their work properly, then you've got, I call them the hook and the line, and the sinker is the body copy. If you get someone to read your body copy in a newspaper, magazine, print ad, digital ad, whatever, if you get somebody to read your body copy, you've won. And so I guess the hierarchy of information is how do I build the importance, a level of importance amongst design or typographic elements to get somebody to go from what I've determined to be my hook the whole way down through my sinker. I often describe hierarchy as being a type of control that the designer can wield. It controls the way the viewer will take in the information in the best possible way that the designer has previously identified. This is because the designer has spent more time with the information, so they know which way they would like to take it in and therefore can set it up that way for the viewer to do. When I explain this, I often overcompensate because the word control has negative connotations. Thankfully, Mel was able to put this in a much better way. I don't think hierarchy is controlling the viewer. I think it's helping them understand what you're trying to say. And sometimes you're making things clearer. So while you are making, you know, you're, you're making deliberate choices, what I would actually say is like if you think about it in terms of information hierarchy, I see a communication from, let's just say, the government. I might need to know what department that's from, but that department piece shouldn't come first. I shouldn't read that first. I need yeah. to read the communication first. So I think I, what I, I would argue that it's, it's about helping people understand what you're trying to communicate, not control. Yeah, that's good. That makes me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we've reached the end of another episode. I hope you enjoyed delving into type as much as I did. It's a massive area and one that takes a whole career to really understand. When I first started at art college, I couldn't really see what all the fuss around type was, but I quickly fell in love with the small details and the subtle effects you can get across with well-thought-out layouts and solid choices of fonts. If you have any questions still lingering, please don't hesitate to reach out and ask. Tim and Mel will be back again next episode when we look at how to introduce image into the story. We'll touch on storytelling and how image can provide additional context to communication in ways that typography just can't do. See you next time and thank you so much for listening. Some Context Please is produced by Foundry and executive produced by me, Matt Leach. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can find me on Twitter at Leachworth or find Foundry on Instagram at MyFoundryLife. Foundry is an Australian creative school designed to bridge the gap between education and industry. We work with top creative leaders from all creative disciplines to design courses that help you find your passion and turn it into a career. To find out more about Foundry's current courses and upcoming intakes, visit foundry.com.au.